Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital. Happy to be back with you in the Brooklyn Bunker once again. Sad not to be in Lexington this weekend. A lot going on down at Keeneland, but I will be watching from afar. We've got a really fun show for you today. A couple of special guests lined up to come in a bit later. But we're going to start things off by bringing in the usual co-host of this show from Windstar Farm. It's Sean Tugel. Sean, what's up, my man? What's going on, Pete? It was uh, great to have you come in for uh, for opening weekend last week, and everybody in Lexington was happy to see you travel down here with J.K. and And I haven't heard reports yet of how your your uh, your tailgating on the hill went, but uh, I'm sure you kept it nice and genteel. It was it was fairly genteel, actually. There there was tea. No, there was no tea. There there, there was what? whiskey. There was whiskey. There was local craft beer. Actually, an amazingly fun day up there. We had some breeding industry folks stop by. We had a lot of listeners stop by. I liked it so much, and I said this on one of the other shows, but it's absolutely true. I think I want to make one day a meet that I go to Keeneland a hill day, and I might do it a little differently where we just go up there from like 11 to 2 and then go in for the racing because it was very hard to be at racing at Keeneland on a day like last Saturday and not see a horse in the flesh. That part didn't exactly agree with me, but it was so fun being up there. We really had a good time, but honestly... And, and I have to give you a hard time about this. My favorite part of the weekend was the dinner on Friday night where we got to see a lot of the breeding industry folks. I feel like as nice as you said Jeff Ruby's was going to be, you undersold the experience, Sean. That was that was knock it out of the park good and just such a unique experience. It, it did feel like a little bit of uh, the Great Gatsby inside of Lexington. It's it's definitely uh, the decor, the, the ambiance, everything about it is definitely uh... – it's fantastic, especially when you got Keeneland going on. People are dressed up, and they come from the races, and or you get connections that are in for the weekend for the big races. You know, it's it definitely is a is a melting pot where everybody can be seen. Um, speaking of that dinner, I, I think we had a little wager. Did did you just tell me that you did not make it in for any races on Saturday? <laughs> did not make it in for a race on Saturday. We just got too busy up on the hill. We started filming a little promotional video. I did not see a horse in the flesh for the, the first time I've ever been to Keeneland. That happens at a lot of racetracks, honestly. That's, that's the best handicapping I did all weekend. <laughs> that's bad. That's bad news for you. Um, but it, it is one of the great things about Keeneland. It, there are not that many tracks where I'd say it's next to impossible to not to, to not see a horse. You know what I mean? There are people at Saratoga. They know racing is going on, certainly. But if you're in the wrong part of the backyard and you're not near the horse path, you might not see a horse. That's I think pretty typical at Keeneland. You almost have to, unless you spend all day up on the hill. I have to ask you about, I believe that cigar uh, that, that was gifted to me made its way to you at the end of the night. Have you, have you had occasion to light it up? Or are you waiting for a special occasion? Is it, is it safely tucked away in the humidor? Well, I think the headache I got from it on Sunday recognized <laughs> that that's why I don't smoke many cigars. <laughs> All right, I want to ask you some Breeders' Cup questions, Sean. That's the event that we're all thinking about, the whole industry pointing towards that at the moment. And this is a really interesting time because we have all these questions that are yet to be answered. Which horses are going to be competing in which races? From a breeding industry perspective, what do you think are the biggest questions from where we sit now a few weeks out turning towards this year's Breeders' Cup? Well, I mean, that's the thing is, is you're still – little over right around four weeks out so there's still a lot of questions you know where's omaha beach gonna run where's a lake gonna run um so 
So certainly from the breeding industry, you know, a horse like Liam's map who, who had Wicked Whisper win very impressively, him being a freshman stallion constitution with his uh, grade one winner last weekend as well, and, and second in the grade one. You know, these freshman sires, I mean, look at American Pharaoh. He's going to have, he had Sweet Melania. He had, uh, was it four-wheel drive? Is that the correct, uh, the American Pharaoh that won the, the futurity in, in Belmont for Wesley Ward? So, um, you know, there's a lot that goes online for these young stallions that are have their first crop. Obviously, they can see a, a massive increase in, in stud feed for next year. Certainly, the proven stallions need to need to keep pace. So the Medallidoros, the Curlins, the, those quality roads that you know rely heavily on these big big time races and results to to keep them at that height. And then, you know, right around the corner, we have the the breeding stock sales, and there's a large large group of these high-end fillies that are going to be making their way to Keeneland and, and face Tipton in a couple of weeks and, and could go from, from being a million-dollar mare to a six-million-dollar mare. So there's a lot on the line in the Breeders' Cup on, from the breeding standpoint, but um, uh, certainly very excited and, and, and very, very much looking forward to this year's Breeders' Cup. It's going to be a lot of great angles, a lot of great races, and, and uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of headliners. I mean, there always are, but there's there's – we're, we're pretty spoiled this year, I think, and, and just the, the headliners that we have that are going to be there, the Midnight Bistews, the Elates, the Omaha Beaches, you know, keep going down the line, McKenzie. So, well, um, uh, my, fingers, my fingers are crossed that we might get to see Enable. I, I, know, I know it sounds a little crazy, and, and before the arc, I would have said that it wasn't going to happen. But I feel like the narrative that has developed out of that race, how both Dettori and Gosden really put the defeat down to the ground whether they're right or wrong and i'm not sure that they're right but whether they're right or wrong if they believe it if the boss believes it where better to come and get some firm ground and, and maybe try to go out with that storybook ending after all i'm rooting for it to happen and as much star power as you've already named that's going to be there uh, for me and for a lot of racing fans around the world that would take it to another level oh absolutely and you'd have to say she she would be the 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 headliner i mean she would be she'd be the one that that everyone would be excited to see to not not to diminish any any of the other horses but but um certainly the resume that she brings in and 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 what she's done and john gosden and and frank Dettori and and prince abdullah so um you know those connections are are the greatest we have in our game so it would be it'd be pretty amazing. It would it would put the cherry on top. That's for sure. Does it sound crazy to you, or do you think I'm right that it could happen? Well, I think if she had won, she would have just gone out on top as Agreed. a three-time arc winner. Agreed. Having not won, it certainly would put put you. Having not won and run so well would make you think that they know that she's in form, and and why not? If I mean there there is pretty much a 99.99% chance that they're going to have very firm ground out there which she likes and and i think she'll she obviously showed uh, her ability against the american-based phillies last year so we'll have to see what happens obviously they're going to do what's right by her hopefully she's touting herself in the morning that she's ready for another go it would be fun all right you did a great overview of some of the angles related to the breeding industry specifically and this year's cup i'm going to ask you to drill down a little bit more when it comes to omaha beach and elate we'll start with omaha beach from your perspective just in terms of future value which target what's the what's the most logical target and which race does the most for him as a stallion so it's kind of two separate questions in other words where do you think he'd have the best chance that's one part of it but then 
in terms of risk and reward, is it maybe worth going for a more ambitious target to potentially for the for the financial upside? What's your overview? Certainly, there's no doubt that the Breeders' Cup Classic um, is the bigger prize, both both in purse money and you know the field that's going to be in there. I think the classic field is always kind of considered the premier field of the event, uh, especially for dirt. And uh, and the lineup there is going to be phenomenal. Um, now, if he goes, if he wins the Breeders' Cup Mile as a three-year-old in in, in impressive fashion, you're you're not going to diminish your value very much. That's that's three Grade One wins as a three-year-old, um, and we know what kind of pedigree he has. So he would still be. Don't know if he's going to stay in training or not next year. That's that's for Spinthrift, obviously, to decide. But um, you know, I I think both those would be marquee wins. Obviously, the classic, no doubt. What uh, what moves you up the ladder there? With that being said, the the mile when you look at a horse who's only run one time since uh, April and it was a six furlong sprint and it wasn't an easy race coming back. I mean, I, he laid everything down now to to be chance a lot. So he's gonna have to bounce back from that race. And you would think probably in a barn of of a conservative nature that the mile would would be the spot they would probably circle most likely, but. Who knows? Recent interviews surprised me. I saw it the same way. But recent interviews surprised me by sounding like the sprint was the more likely target at the moment, which for me, I don't love for him just because I think he's going to be better going longer. And I think this sprint is going to be a lot harder than the last one. But breeding industry wise, would would the sprint be more prestigious potentially than the dirt mile? Or would you value those about the same? I know not the purse isn't the same. The purse is more with the sprint, but in terms of mm-hmm. future value, is there any advantage to one over the other? I think those are pretty, pretty, pretty much comparables outside of the purse. All right, that's that's makes a lot of sense. We'll have to see what happens. My gut was a dirt mile, and it's it's kind of interesting. If a horse like this doesn't run in the dirt mile, it does make me wonder. <laughs> this would be the, the exact situation for which the dirt mile was supposed to exist. So uh, anyway, we we shall see. Those connections know so much. I'm not claiming to be smarter than them. I'm just an Omaha Beach fanboy wondering what's going to happen next. And we've seen, in terms of the difference between the dirt mile and the classic, I mean, Liam's map being a prime recent example of how going out with a flashy win at the Breeders' Cup, even in the race that's not the classic, can still lead to a lot of excitement around uh, around uh, breeders, for sure. Absolutely, 100%. How about Elate? When you look at the choice they're making between the Distaff and the classic, what do you think is going... I know it's, it's a difficult question, but I'm going to ask you what's going through their mind and what might factor into where they ultimately decide to compete. I do think you have to recognize that probably a mile and a quarter is her absolute desired distance. It certainly, you don't like describing other people's horses, but you got, you'd have to go up against Midnight Pursue, and obviously Blue Prize is very difficult at a mile and eight. Um, I doubt you'll see Dunbar Road, unless you, unless I haven't read correctly, but that horse, that filly was ran very, very good the other day in the spinster, being a three-year-old against older, and two very top-class older fillies. And they must have confidence. I mean, she's obviously a very tough filly. She'll lay it down. So I don't think and she's a big filly. So you don't have to worry about her getting bounced around by the boys. So if you truly and ultimately believe that the mile and a quarter makes her a better horse, then that's probably the, the route you would, you would go. Uh, I don't think you're going to diminish Elate's uh, overall record and career and everything uh, if you take that opportunity and chance. 
That's a great point. She doesn't. I mean, yes, it would be huge to win the the distaff, but you're not going to lose anything. And you'd have to think the value is going to increase significantly with a win in the classic, given regardless of who shows up. Well, I mean, here's the thing: is is, is when if you're looking at the classic field, don't you have a lot of question marks next to a lot of horses who are who are going to go the mile and a quarter, right? McKenzie, looking at paper, is is extremely vulnerable at mile and a quarter. And if you if you're handicapping the race and the, and and the late is a standout at a mile and a quarter, really the only other horse in the race, Yoshida's a proven horse kind of at, at that level. He was only beaten the length last year in the Classic himself. And then you also have Vinaroso, who's who's two for two or one, however you want to describe it, at, at a mile and a quarter <laughs> himself. There, you know, when you're when you're looking and you're handicapping the distance and you're saying, well, who's definitely going to get the mile and a quarter? I mean, a late, there's no question there. It's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what these connections decide to do. Any other storylines you're particularly excited about heading into this year's Breeders' Cup? Certainly keeping an eye. It looks as if Tis the Law is, is going to probably bypass the Breeders' Cup. I don't. I haven't read anything. Uni, who was a very impressive winner last year or last weekend of, of, of a winning your end, she needs to supplement. I don't. I haven't seen if, if she's planning on doing that or not. So I, bet a lot of I bet they will. I bet they will. There's a lot of moving parts at this moment uh, and, and seeing exactly who's going to be in what race. Yeah. Um, so it, they'll evolve over the next three weeks. It's kind of like getting ready for the Super Bowl. Can't wait. <laughs> it's going to be a ton of fun. That's for sure. We'll be talking about it a lot on this show and elsewhere on the In the Money Network. You mentioned Tis the Law, Sean. That's a great segue into our first guest. And now I'd like to welcome to the In the Ring Airwaves, Randy Goulat of Twin Creeks Farm. Randy, how are you today? Great, guys. How are you guys doing? Life is good. How about you, Sean? Everything going well down there in Lexington for you? Everything's going smooth. The sunshine's still out and Keeneland's at full blast. We are here to talk to Randy about his life in racing. And we're going to start off with a colt who's impressed so many people. One of the, the really impressive performances at Saratoga that's since been backed up on the racetrack. Tis the law. Randy, I want to hear about your involvement with this colt. Well, uh, we were lucky enough to uh, own half of constitution when he raced and uh we're still a major player in him now supporting him and seeing a son of him that we raised become this kind of rising star is uh is really cool i mean it just shows you how good constitution is i mean we are really excited about this horse when you when you saw the last race were you surprised by how impressive it was i mean i know everybody thought a lot of this horse but that was that was really something else and i and i know had a lot of people thinking uh, very very big thoughts so what was your reaction going in and how did you feel coming out i mean i thought this race was coming up so tough i mean it looked like the the best uh, two-year-olds that raced at saratoga I was there and watched all those horses perform, and and they all were very impressive. So I was uh, really impressed that this horse just went by really good horses and uh, just seemed to be in cruise control at the wire. So, uh, I mean, it's it's exciting. I mean, this horse looks like he'll run all day, and um, it's it's pretty amazing. 
what would be your best guess as to what the next target for the horse is going to be? Uh, I know we've heard some rumors that it might not be the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. I was just curious to get your perspective on what you thought might happen and what you wanted to see. You know, I, at this point, we're just uh, thankful that, that this horse is competing at the highest level. And it sounds like these guys have Kentucky Derby as their dream. And why not? I mean, he's showing um, the right kind of class. And, hey, if, uh, if they want to move him to, to kind of Churchill Downs to give him his next start, which sounds like what they're thinking, um, I'm all behind him. I'm, I'm just a, a big fan right now, and uh, we're just cheering the horse right now. Hey, these are connections that have some experience when it comes to the Kentucky Derby, so I think they can probably be trusted uh, to some degree in that regard. You mentioned about the connection to Constitution. I feel like you were being maybe a little bit modest there. From what I understand, you had a strong hand in picking him out. You weren't just uh, tangentially involved. Is that right, and what drew you to Constitution back in the day? You know, uh, that horse uh, was a just an outstanding yearling Um Every time I went to see him, he just eluded class. And at the time, Tappet was really starting to show that he was uh, a top dog. Um, and we just targeted him, and we were fortunate enough to get him. Um, and it's it's hard to buy these really top horses at the sale. You just never know who your competition is going to be. And we got lucky that day and, and were able to get him bought. What do you remember about that auction process? Was it uh, was it particularly heated? Do you remember who you were going up against? What emotions were going through your mind at the time? You know, we actually thought the horse would bring a lot more money, um, and we were prepared to pay a lot more for him. Um, so, like I say, you just never know how those auctions go. Um, there, there's just no way to predict those things. Um, yeah, we were just thrilled we got him, and uh, he turned out to be what we hoped he'd be. And Randy, certainly uh, Winstar's been along for the ride with you, even as in his racing career, and when he won the two grade ones for, for, our, for our partnership, and, and certainly from the beginning of trying to make him uh, the success that he's been today. Well, you know, you, you've been involved, and, and Steve certainly uh, have been involved in, in trying to make several other stallions, and and you guys know how hard it is and how much effort you have to put into these horses early on. Why don't you just expand upon, you know, uh, both yours and Steve's dedication to, uh, to trying to produce these stallions that, that hopefully can go on and be uh, breed changers. You know, the whole key is getting these things off going at the start. And, um, and it's, there's just so many hoops to go through. It's just you can raise a good horse, but, you know, things happen along the way. And it just takes a big commitment. And uh, we've been fortunate enough to have a, a nice farm here in Kentucky, and, and we have a really nice broodmare band that we can really get behind these horses and give them that opportunity uh, to succeed. And, and uh, you know, we've been lucky and, and been able to come up with horses like uh, Tis the Law. And uh, we actually have another horse named uh, Gray Magician, that we bred uh, for Gradar that uh, is going to run today at Keeneland, and they have big hopes on him, and even uh, maybe even a Breeders' Cup start. So, uh, But, uh, you know, it's hard work. It takes a lot of commitment, and uh, you just have to get lucky and give these good horses a chance. Yeah. Randy, what, 
why don't you go ahead and expand upon for for many people uh they see they see yourself at the sales and, and representing Twin Creeks. Why don't you uh expand upon how Twin, Twin Creeks got started with uh your relationship with Steve Davidson and his family and and uh the infancy of it and, and how how you got to where you are today. You know, Steve and I are uh, childhood friends, and we grew up in the business together, and we actually got started in the game out of high school. And uh, I trained horses, and uh, I talked Steve into getting into the game at that early stage. And, you know, we just kind of built it one horse at a time. And, you know, we've just been lucky to come up with a lot of good horses. And, uh um, we never dreamed at the time that we would be at this kind of level, but it's uh, it's just been a slow process, and uh, we're really fortunate to be where we are. And uh, Steve Davison is a, an incredible partner and friend and owner, and um, he's allowed us to uh, to be where we are. And uh, I mean, we have big dreams. I mean, you know, we we want to win the Kentucky Derby one day, and we want to win the Breeders' Cup Classic, and you know, uh, we're working hard, and y you never know. I wanted to ask you about Steve. I interviewed him years ago when he was involved in purchasing the Ragazin sheets. I think a lot of the horse players in our audience, we have sort of a mixed audience of breeding industry folks and horse players, but I think horse players would appreciate that connection to the sheets. How important are the sheets to you, Randy, in what you do, and what do you like about their methodology? You know, I think uh, the sheets are the the best detailed evaluation of how good these horses are, and uh, it really helps us come up with uh, if we're going to try to buy into a horse or how good a stallion is or how good a mare actually is, and it just gives you, gives you a, a better detailed number, and then they put a lot to 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 making that number, and uh, you know, it's it's very nice to have. Uh, all those numbers to back up what what we see, and uh, when you put all that together, you know it really helps. I feel like everyone in the horse business, whether it's somebody like you guys working in the industry proper or folks more on the horse player side, when you think back into your past, there's always a horse that you would describe as the one that did it to you, that got that hook in your heart mm. forever. For a lot of us, it's an experience that happened when we're young. For some people we've talked to about this, it's a horse that came along later and maybe changed the course of their lives. For you, Randy, who is that horse? You know, when I was a trainer, um, every horse that just won a race meant a lot. But at the time, I bought this filly um, out of Arizona named La Paz. And uh, she won a couple stakes for us, and she was just, just a wonderful horse to, to be around. And we put her in the broodmare band right off the bat, and she came up with Force Camp. And Force Camp was... Uh, uh, Bob Baffert's big horse at the time. He won the Del Mar Futurity. And uh, we ended up selling that mare for a million six. And at the time, I mean, that was big time for us. I mean, it just gave us the opportunity to actually play at another level. And um, Summer Wind bought her, and they bred her to Unbridled Song and came up with a colt that we bought in September that I loved named Mission Impossible. Sure. And 
Mission Impossible went on to win the Louisiana Derby, where we're from Louisiana. So there's no doubt that La Paz was that horse that gave us that chance financially and then came up with that big horse, Mission Impossible, who to this day is in my backyard in the summertime and then <laughs> breeds in New York in the in the wintertime and it's just it's like a dream. Randy, um certainly as the calendar changes every year, uh everybody who's who's in the game is looking to see who they might have who to get them to uh the big races in the spring. How about uh your stable? You have any two year olds that, that you're high on that have either run or, or or have run uh, not started yet that that you see could be some good horses in your stable going forward in your silks. You know we uh, we bought into a, another Constitution cult um, that was really impressive at parks named Independence Hall and uh, Eclipse Thoroughbreds and Twin Creeks bought into this guy and I went up to Fairhill uh, a couple weeks ago and saw him and just fell in love with him. Um, he won his maiden race like a good horse does. Mike Trombetta has him. Um, Mike was saying all the right things. He thinks he's the the right kind of horse, the right kind of mind. Uh, Constitution obviously is making all the the right moves. Really interesting horse. I we got real high hopes on him. Um, and then we also bought a uh, Constitution from the sales named established last year that we're very high on and i think he's he could make a start somewhere maybe december and that's that's of uh, course it's a half to sweet loretta right the, correct I think correct yeah yeah so he's got the uh the bottom side going with constitution and a beautiful horse we've been very patient with him and and hopefully it pays off uh, the one I, now, Randy, I did, I didn't divulge to Pete that that you and him share uh, a, a hidden talent, and and and, it, but but you both have, are, are DJs, and uh, what when, now back in your your DJ uh, career when you were getting the getting the room pumped up, did you have a go to song to go to? Uh, guys, now we're talking the eighties. Um, that that's a long time ago. Um, so those were actual vinyl records. So a They're little back. different technology. Yeah, vinyl's back. And, <laughs> so uh, we were just uh, uh, having fun and making enough money to uh, to to have weekend money. So uh, uh, that that was a lot of fun back in the day. What, what kind of jocking were you doing, Randy? We talking parties, clubs, what uh, weddings, bar mitzvahs? Where where are we going here? <laughs> We were doing high school and college parties. Oh, you must have a song that you remember from that era that got the the kids of whom I would have been one uh, going in the eighties. Oh my gosh, um, I would say Billy Idol no. was the one back in the day. I think I think we may just have to change up the usual closing song for this podcast now that now that Billy Idol's gotten a call. Love it. I got it. I have another one more racing question for you. It's a little it's a little cheeky. Given your background as a trainer, is it ever difficult to avoid the urge to micromanage the trainers who are now working for you in your role at Twin Creeks? Uh, Yes. Yes. Um, To to be honest, it's it's tough. I do my best just to 
to let the trainer do what he does, um, you know, it's it's extremely difficult training horses these days. There's so many moving parts. Um, but there comes a time where, you know, sometimes I just have to uh, give my two cents, and but I do my best to to sit back and just let let those guys do what they do. And uh, but it's a tough game, and and I feel I feel for the guys that uh, that have to get up every morning and make these decisions. So um, I do my best not to to micromanage those things. You mentioned how different the game is. You talk about the moving parts. What are you talking about specifically? What's the biggest difference between now and when you were training? You know, there's so many horses that these uh, these really good trainers have to deal with. Um, um, when you become a, a, a really talented trainer, everybody wants you. So, um, you know, you you have so many owners that you got to please and – and uh, there's only so many stalls you can put at a given racetrack. So it, it's very tough. And trying to get good help and keeping good riders and uh, everybody happy on a daily basis is, is a mega challenge. And uh, I get it. I understand it. And, uh, you know, I try to support them the best I can. Randy, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. We look forward to having you back on the show again soon. All right, guys. Thanks for calling. And now we'll let Sean get on with his day as well. And I'd like to welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree show from Great British Racing International General Manager Amanda Pryor. Amanda, how are you doing this morning? I'm very well, thank you. Great to be on. I want to talk to you about book one of the Tattersall sale that's recently been concluded. But before we do that, we were chatting a little bit off air about Great British Racing International and your mission as it pertains to the international market. Yes, yeah, so we're the international marketing body for British Racing, um, and we're set to grow and maintain international investment in British Racing and Bloodstock. So that means I look after a lot of the international owners when they come over um, and try and find new owners. Basically, anytime they're, they're in Britain, make sure they're having a great time. From what I'm hearing, that's been the case so far at this sale. I'd love to get a little perspective about how uh, book one went for for you. Yeah, things went well. Um, Turnover topped 100 million guineas once again, uh, which is good. It was slightly down on last year, but that's been growing year on year for the past eight years. So so it's still the second highest on record. Um, There were some wonderful highlights, which I'm sure you would have seen. Ten yearlings broke the million guinea mark, uh, which included a few really epic duels between Coolmore and, and Godolphin. I don't know, Peter, if you've ever been to, to Tattersalls or to, to a sale in England. Just at Cheltenham. Been? I've been to a sale at Cheltenham, uh, but never uh, oh, okay. never the Tattersalls sale. I've got to, I'm going to make it a point. The way the calendar dovetails, it's not always easy, but uh, I've seen the pictures and some video, but I haven't had a chance to be yeah. there in person. Well, Americans will often say it's a lot slower. The the bidding is a lot slower here than, than in the States, which I'd validate having been over to the States. But I think it means you get a lot more of the drama and a lot more atmosphere because when these big lots do come in, the ring is silent. You can just hear the, the hoof prints going around. And, um, and it leaves a lot of time for sort of gasps. So it's super exciting. 
Very cool. I want to give a question for some of the horse player listeners. We do have a lot of industry people who listen to this show who already know this. But the unit of currency that you're you're describing, the 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 guinea, where does that yeah. uh, explain what that is and and where that comes from? Sure. So the guinea is one pound and five pence. So it basically means it's a blind commission where you're paying five percent, but it's it's hidden. It does mean that tattersalls are locked in to that five percent so it's never going to increase and i think it's actually the lowest in europe um but yeah so it's the extra five percent is their commission you talked about the success and some of the high-end lots who in the end was the sales topper the sales topper was hazelwood bloodstock's 3.6 million guinea dubawi colt um he was out of the galileo mare alina um, bred by Sun International, who are a Hong Kong-based entity, um, but they board their mares locally um, at Hazelwood, which is with Adrian O'Brien. Uh, he spent some time in Australia, I believe, working um, for Coolmore Australia. Um, but it was, yeah, like I said, it was a, another classic duel between Coolmore and Godolphin, with Godolphin coming out on top. Um, Godolphin actually bought three of the most expensive lots, as well as the Dubawi. They also bought Golden Horn Franco half brother. He cost them 3.1 million, um, and then Colm Valley's gorgeous Kingman Colt, who was out of grace and favour. This was so nice. Uh, Nicholas Jones, the breeder, he has about six mares, um, and he'll sell the colts every year. So for him to get such an expensive price um, for the Kingman was fantastic. That yeah, was really good. We talked about Coolmore and Godolphin, obviously being extremely active in the sale. Who are some of the other? prolific buyers and sellers in book one shadwell they spent over seven million uh of course mark bright mike Ryan was really busy he was in and out on a lot of them um, and i believe he spent over six million on 24 yearlings a new player george von opel he bought some really smart fillies uh, he's basically planning to assemble a top quality broodmare band in britain um, and a few of them he bought in conjunction with with coolmore and a few he bought independently uh, in terms of consigners, it was lovely to see, from my point of view, the, the top three consigners, they were all British. So Newsels Park um, was top. Then it was Hazelwood Bloodstock, who we touched on earlier. Um, and New England Stud, which is Peter Stanley's. Uh, it's local to Newmarket. And um, interestingly, a lot of the top horses were sold by international owners. The Gunthers had a lovely touch. John and Tanya Gunther, um, sure. John International, as I mentioned. So, yeah, it's been great to see such a global um, activity. Segues nicely into my next question. You mentioned the Gunthers. I wanted to ask about American participation in general in the sale. Has it increased in recent years? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and we're hugely grateful to Mike Bryan and Chad Brown, who have had great success with the first group of yearlings they bought at Tattersalls, which was two years ago. Um, and I hear they've got some lovely two-year-old prospects coming through. Um, but I believe it's this, uh, and there's a growing romance, I feel, in the U.S. with turf racing uh, and Royal Ascot, which has prompted more American buyers to come to Tattersalls. Uh, it was wonderful to welcome Todd Pletcher, Liz Crow, Jay Hanley, all of which were coming for the first time. Uh, we welcome back the Windstar team, obviously Chad Brown and Mike Ryan, Justin Cassie. I mean, the list goes on. It was brilliant to see so many Americans. You guys would have all felt very at home there. So we were delighted to have you. Um, 
as I said, it's my job to make sure that everyone over here has the best possible experience, whether that's getting out on the gallops in the morning, seeing amazing stallions we have around here or um, fun late night dinners, anything really just to ensure that the most amount of fun is happening. I can second the idea of what a magical place that is. Newmarket should be on the bucket list of everyone in the horse racing industry in the U.S. And I'm eager to talk to some of those folks you mentioned who made their first trip over. Liz Crow in particular has been on the show a couple of times and looking forward okay. to having her back. We'll make sure to add that to the questions to ask her. I wanted to back up a little bit and talk a little about you and how you got your start in the horse business and got to the position you're in now. Sure. Um, well, horses have always been in my blood. My family have a stud in the Cotswolds, which is called Overbury Stud, and that began in the 60s with my grandfather. He bred 1975 Derby winner Grundy, um, among many others, and was sort of famed for his draft um, at Paddlefield. I think because we live on on a sheep farm, which is on a hill, he used to walk these yearlings up the hill, and would, so they'd arrive already, really muscled up and ready to go. So people. He got a good reputation for having horses that were already half fit, I think. Um, and then after university, I went, I did the Godolphin Flying Start, which was amazing. Um, and while I was on that, got offered the job with Great British Racing, and it's now my fifth year oh, with, with Great British Racing. I took over as general manager in July. So, yeah, my first quarter in charge, I suppose. <laughs> we, we've we talked to a lot of people recently who went through the Godolphin Flying Start experience. It seems that so many people that we know in the industry either came up like I did, the sort of rugged route of working for the Saratoga <laughs> Special in uh, in Saratoga. Not sure if you got any got a chance to meet any of, of that gang. And then uh, the, the, the more posh among you uh, do the, the <laughs> Darley flying start path into the into the business. But it's certainly produced a, a lot of industry veterans at this point. And, and it sounds like you've made the most of, of that experience. What When you think back to your time at Darley Flying Start as somebody who grew up in the business, what's one thing that that really enabled you to learn that you hadn't had the chance to do before? Well, I think you arrive into every country as if you've already been there for three months because you, you get a car, you get a place to live, and the first week you have, like, all these dinners with industry people, uh, whether they're gadgets for the program or daily employees or just useful contacts. So by about week two, you already feel like a local and you kind of have a really good understanding of the business. And I think people... So as soon as you mention you're on the flying start, they're so welcoming and grateful to help you, whether that's because they're already indebted to Sheikh Mohammed or they'd like to be indebted to Sheikh Mohammed. It enables so many doors to open. That's such a good point about being able to hit the ground running in a new place. You can really get a lot going in a short amount of time if you don't have to make all of those just basic life adjustments. I mean, it can take you weeks to find an apartment potentially. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, here you are, you're there and you're working from day one. I could see how you'd get a lot more juice out of the lemon in that regard. I know you were briefly in Saratoga this summer, was curious to ask how your experience was there. You mentioned the difference in the pace of the sale. What were some other similarities and differences? Oh, Saratoga is fantastic, isn't it? Oh, love um, it. For me, it's great because so many of 
the clients and friends that I have that I need to either catch up with or to meet, they all congregate there. So it means I can hit about four days worth of work. Uh, I mean, a year's worth of work takes about four days. I get around <laughs> everyone. Um, and it was really rewarding to see so many of the people that said they were going to come to Tattersall's actually uh, there at Tattersall's. And I think we're going to see about 50 yearlings heading over the pond, which is amazing. I went with Melissa Steele from Tattersall's. So the two of us kind of try and work this out as quickly as we can to see as many people as we can. I think most catalogues probably have notes scribbled all over the horses, whereas for us, it's, it's all over the pages about the people. <laughs> That's great. I can see there being increasing cross-pollination between the two marketplaces. And I think you touched on the, the reasons, the increased USA interest in Ascot, and certainly all the more money that now can be run for on turf in this country. I would imagine this is just the, the, the beginning in terms of increased participation for us at some of the sales over there. Do you see this as a one-way train? I really hope so. Um, well, I hope in answer to increased um, activity, I really hope so. But as a one-way train, no. I think we'll see a lot of British trainers running horses in the States as well, like uh, Kentucky Downs, places like this that have got great purse money, and our horses can often come out on top due to the, the quality of the turf racing over here. Um, another part of my job is to really promote the different racing festivals throughout the calendar here in Britain and trying to get some American owners, trainers to buy horses but keep them in training here for a couple of years so they can experience Chester in May or go up to York for the Ebor. Each festival is so different. It's got all this wonderful charm. So I'd love to, to let Americans experience more than just Royal Ascot. I think that's a great mission. Chester's one I want to ask you about. I've heard it's very special. I know just from my own form study that the form from Chester often indicates a horse that will run around the states, left-handed, tight turns, things mm -hmm. like that. But I've heard more than one person tell me about the atmosphere, but I haven't experienced it myself. Give me a little bit oh, more on, on what that would be like. You've got to get up there. Um, it's amazing. It's right in the middle of the town. There's this gorgeous medieval wall that runs all around it. And you really feel you can't escape the horses, if you know what I mean. Some racetracks are so big. You could spend the day racing and you never see a horse. You're kind of in the bar, I feel miles away. Whereas <laughs> Chester, it's sort of all on top of you. The atmosphere is amazing. And then racing finishes and you skip down the road into a bar. So it's, it's very cool. <laughs> I think we have a lot of people now circling dates on their on their calendar. May and August, of course, are the two uh, really craziest times. There's so much going on in USA racing. But one of these years, I'm going to make it a point to get over there. And even if I have to watch a, a big USA race or a big meeting like Saratoga on TV, just to get the experience of those festivals. One of these years, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and do it. I can't let you get out of here without asking about the Breeders' Cup. Do you at this point have any insight into some of the European runners who might be making the journey over? Well, I don't know if that's angled at Enable. If it is, I don't have any more insight than you. I mean, obviously, we'd love to see her running. It would be so special, but time will tell. I do. I know a little bit, I suppose. I think uh, International Grow Cross Old Persians pretty likely to run for Charlie Appleby. Um, and then in the Philly and Mare turf, for us it would be exciting when I say us, I'm referring to Britain. Um, I think 
hopefully we'll have strong representation with both John Gosden's star catcher and Sir Michael Stout's voracious, I'm hoping. Um, juvenile turf fillies could be exciting too. Uh, Hugo Palmer's powerful breeze, she runs later today, so we'll know a little more after that. Roger Variant, Albany, and Rockefeller stake to win a Dea, she's a possibility. Um, I know Carl Burke Lau, the winning um, living in the past, is a likely runner. Um, it's just hard, I guess, for the two roads. So much good racing happens this weekend, it's kind of going to explain a bit more. So in the next few weeks, we'll, we'll know even more. I don't know if you've seen, we have an initiative called Team British Racing. Hopefully you and your listeners will be familiar with it. It's basically a vehicle to showcase the, the training talent in Britain. So we give them personalised Union Jack kit and generate as much press and content around it as we can. It's kind of like an Olympic squad we have going over there. And we've enlisted the support of Grand Slam Social to generate as much content as we can during the Breeders' Cup. So hopefully you'll see lots of Union Jacks um, <laughs> and we'll be banging the drum as loudly as we can for those British trainers. Oh, that's cool. Well, we're going to be out there every morning, Jonathan Kinchin and myself, looking for fun content, audio, video, etc. So maybe there'll be some cross-pollination there. And we know the Grand right. Slam team very well, and they're always a lot of fun to work with. So if we can get some, some stuff going with them, that would be our pleasure. Absolutely. Will you be making the journey over for the Breeders' Cup? No, I was toying with the idea um, and putting a close eye on our budgets as well. But I think because how it falls so close with the sales um, at Phasig uh, and then Keenan, so many of the principals who I'd like to see will probably still be looking at horses in Kentucky. So uh, I decided not to go, sadly. I'd have loved to have gone, but no. I'm going to be here. We've got the Grand Slam team working for us out there. You have great representation on the grounds. Hopefully we'll get a chance to see you at Keeneland or Del Mar in coming years and certainly over at uh, Ascot next year. And, and there'll be lots of opportunities for paths to cross. Amanda Pryor, thank you so much for that overview and thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. We'd like to thank Sean Tugel, Randy Goulat, and Amanda Pryor for their contributions. Also, of course, thank all of you, the listeners, especially those of you we got to hang out with out in Lexington last weekend. That was so much fun. Can't wait to get back down to the place I affectionately call Lex Vegas. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way. Last night, the came dancing to my pool. Last night, the came on my floor. Said, come, baby, such poor love. And if it looks